I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Mike Fleming. He's the Chief Growth Marketing and Development Leader for one of the leading hospices in the United States. Their name, Amedesis. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us on Death by Design podcast today. It is a pleasure to talk to someone with I guess not the same experience, but similar experience. I work with a hospice organization and you work with one of the leading hospices on a national level known as Emeticis. Uh, thanks, Kimberly. It's my, my honor to be here. What I love about talking to people who work in hospice and who are doing this incredibly spiritual work is that they always tend to have a hospice story. And I would love for you to start off. I know, I mean, your title is with, you know, chief of growth and marketing, but no matter what title you come to hospice, you tend to have some personal story that pulls you and your heart into this sort of work. So tell us a little bit about how you got here. Sure. My pleasure. So I, it's interesting. I think that uh, our why and why we do hospice evolves over time. So I'll, I'll tell you how I started, and I'll tell you where I am now. And they're they're not exactly the same place. So when I when I first got into healthcare many many moons ago, uh, I started in the hospital world and really hadn't considered hospice or post acute care. I hadn't really looked at that as part of my journey uh, until I got a phone call from someone who said we'd love to take your hospital experience and turn it into a hospice world. And and my first thought was, wow, I don't know that I'm built for that. I I don't know that that's the right path for me. And it only took one meeting. Uh, This was with Roseanne Berry, who was the founder of Vistacare, based in Arizona, uh, got about 15 years ago. And she shared a story with me about one of her first patients. And it had been a young mother of three kids, a single mom, who was terminal stage four breast cancer and had weeks to live. And no other hospice in the community would accept her because she, her home, and her children were infested with lice. And Roseanne said, that's not okay. And as an open access hospice, we're going to go find those people who need us the most. Because who needs us more, the person who has no caregiver and an immaculate living condition or the single mom who's struggling with those kids? And for Roseanne to say, you know, when my nurse said, I'm not sure that we can take that patient, Roseanne's response was, does she need us? The answer was yes. Does she qualify? The answer was yes. Then turn back around, you get to her home, you admit her to our service, and we'll make a difference in her life. And as soon as I heard that story, I was hooked. I I was (laughs) bound to be a volunteer or an employee or or something. I'm like, I I have to be part of this movement. And, And to get the chance to work in a space that supports people who are so phenomenal like the Roseans of the world who want to go out there and change the world, who want to find those folks who need help the most and reach out to them. Uh, it's my honor, honestly, to work alongside those folks. And I, it's interesting. I, I think we all have something that brought us in. And it's about three years later when my dad 
uh, died of small cell lung cancer. And being a recipient of the care, it, it just changes the lens through which you look at hospice. I, I knew it as a hospice employee, but I didn't know it as a son and as a family member who was receiving support and care. Um, and then more recently, I had a very good friend who, uh, at the age of 39, uh, died of a peritoneal sarcoma. And the experience, just walking that walk with her, I, I think our why evolves a little bit every day. Uh, and I think as an industry, we've come so far. But when I think about all the folks who are going without hospice care, you know, we're up to about 46% of people get care, which is phenomenal. I, I look back 15 years ago and think, it was only 30%. So we're growing on average more than 1% improvement per year, which is really unprecedented. But it also means that for every person who's getting hospice, there's somebody dying without the benefit, maybe in pain, maybe alone, not empowered to make their own choices, where they're dying and not actually living those last days, weeks, and months. Uh, so when I think about why I do what I do, it, it's, it's changed and it's evolved over time. And I, I feel actually more passionate now than I did 15 years ago. Uh, and I think about the other jobs that I've had uh, where the passion maybe started to wane a bit. Uh, and, and with this, every single day, I get a chance to meet new people and find a new wrinkle in our mission uh, that drives me to just love it even more. Hmm. I love that explanation. And, and I love people like the Rebecca's uh, out in the world who are in it for the right reasons. Um, I, I, I do believe uh, a lot of people uh, looking at hospice and the regulations and Medicare and, and all of these exterior things that does impact care, um, but a lot of hospices are taking it as a way to provide and improve and provide more quality of services to their patients. But before we get too far down that road, you know, so many people are still so confused about hospice. What does it mean? What is the services? And and some people still think and relate it to the D word and which, you know, a lot of hospice patients do die. But talk to me a little bit about what is hospice? Sure, sure. So I'll, I'll start kind of broad because I think it's important to have the context of how hospice works. And, and I'd I start by saying, it's probably the most integrated and attentive form of healthcare I've ever seen. It's comprehensive. It's holistic. It's, it's one of those care models that isn't just about the patient. Uh, and it's, it's about the patient. It's about the family. It's about the experience. And it's about listening. I, when I think about hospice, I, I think about the care path that a patient has been on. So let's say it's a patient who's had congested heart failure, perhaps for years. And they've been on this path where they've been receiving treatment and maybe aggressively curative treatment. And they hit a certain point where long-term cure is no longer an option. So then they're at this point where, in my mind, uh, there's two roads. And hospice provides an alternate path that says, you know, let's figure out how we can support you on your journey. And, you know, the regulations say it's a life-limiting illness of six months or less if the disease runs its normal course. And those are the guidelines. But to me, it's about that patient who says, you know, I've identified that I have goals and I have things that I want to do. I have ideas of how I want to live every single last hour, day, week, or month of my life. 
And I want someone to hold my hand and walk me down that path because let's be honest, none of us have died before. And it's a, it's a scary proposition. And I think as a country, we struggle so much with coming to grips with our own mortality. And hospice is that way to say, hey, you know what? There's a really serious illness. There is something going on that more than likely will take your life in the next several months. How can we walk with you, walk that path with you through physical support, pain and symptom management, emotional and spiritual support, and be there for you and allow you to stay in your own home? Uh, it's funny, the number of times we've had conversations with patients and families, when we will start not with, here's what hospice is. We'll start with, what's important to you? Tell me what's going on. Just tell me what's been happening the last several days, weeks, or months. What we normally hear is this litany of hospital visits and physician visits and how tired they are of being poked or prodded or trying to go for that next cure and chasing that next thing that they think probably isn't going to happen, but they feel like that's the path that they're on. And what we want to do is empower them to say, there is nothing wrong with that path. But if there's, tell us what's important to you. What do you want? Well, I just want to be home with my dog in my lap and my recliner watching the prices right. If that's what you want to do, let's figure out how hospice can be part of your treatment plan, not instead of your doctors, not instead of the other stuff you have going on, but in addition to it. It's flipping from a either or into an and world where hospice should be supplementing and supporting the other care that you're receiving to make sure that your goals are being achieved and that you're living your life on your terms for as long as you have left. Well, sign me up because that's exactly the hospice I want. And I do plan to have hospice one day. And uh, that's that's the kind of hospice organization that I want to die with um, because it is about the patient, um, you know, being in hospice care for over 17 years. You know, I really trained our staff to to ask, you know, OK, this sucks. You know, someone you love is facing a really chronic illness, but what is the most important thing from this moment moving forward? And you can create you can you can create a care plan around that. Because that's what hospice is, is, is really what's important to the patient and how do we meet that as we journey with these, these families. And it's, an amaz it's amazing to hear some of these stories. It, it, I, I really, it brings back memories of, of me being a part of a hospice organization that really has inspired the work since I've left hospice. But, you know, I, I, Dame Cicely Saunders, one of my heroes, uh, she started this modern hospice movement to get some kind of care for those outside of the medical model of, of medicine. You know, she wanted to provide her father an area and a, a place where he could live um, the way he wanted to and face end of life. Do you think uh, in America, in the United States, do you think hospices ha have become you know, a part of that medical model or too much a part of that medical model? I think that cuts both ways, Kimberly. I, I think if we as hospices allow ourselves to become exclusively a medical model, that defeats so much of the purpose of what we can do. If we talk about meeting patients and families where they are, their goals aren't always just to live longer. And it's not just about pain management. There's so much of our pain uh, it's sort of our challenge that can be emotional, can be spiritual. I think we, we have to walk that fine line. But if I'm looking at the healthcare industry as a whole, you know, we've talked about for every one patient who gets hospice, there's one 
there's another one who doesn't. Uh, and I also think about the how long they get the hospice benefit. Uh, and oftentimes, a meeting like this day in this country is just about three weeks. And when I think about that, I think, well, how do we embrace the rest of the medical model in a more significant way to get them to partner with us? It's not about compromising who we are. It's not about compromising or sacrificing the spiritual and emotional sides of what we do, but it's about becoming more integrated into the healthcare system. So I guess I would say that it hasn't become integrated enough with the medical model of care, and it's it's often seen as an afterthought. I, I've had conversations with hospitals and doctors and nurses and really well-intentioned healthcare providers who still see hospice as a place, uh, as a place where we'll hold your hand and there'll be butterflies and doves and rainbows, and it's this spiritual journey, which I think that is part of who we are, but we're a lot more than that. And so I, I envision a day where hospice is viewed as the medical subspecialty that it is. Uh, you think about doctors. I'm a primary care physician and I have a complex case. I know if my patient requires specialized care, I refer to a specialist. If my patient has cancer, I refer to an oncologist. If my patient has a cardiac need, I refer to a cardiologist. If my patient has kidney disease, I refer to a nephrologist. It just goes, they know what that path is. And so if we could get to a world where every healthcare practitioner said, I've got a patient who's facing a terminal illness, and they're getting to that point where we need to have that goals conversation and identify what path is right. I know that there's a specialist that can help me with that, and that specialist is my local hospice. If we get to that, if we get to that point, then now we've integrated as part of that medical model, but it doesn't mean that we become strictly a medical model. It's it's a fine it's line. It's almost like a bridge. It is. Yeah. It is. It's a bridge because if if we don't and we talk about meeting people where they are, well, let's meet the medical community where they are, and where are they? Well, they're in, they're in a medical model. So I think we have to embrace that in order to build that bridge. And when that patient then has a chance to talk with us, it's it's amazing to me the first conversation we have with so many patients and families. There's so much fear and there's so much anxiety. And the number of times that we're told this is the first time anybody in healthcare has really, really listened to me. I think that's a shame and it's disappointing. But when I look at how our healthcare model was built, and it's amazing, I, there, there are so many amazing parts to what we can do as a healthcare system, but I don't think we do a great job listening. And so as a hospice, one of our primary core competencies, if you will, has to be a willingness and ability to actively listen and to ask questions and to want to hear their stories because we can't build their plan of care until we know what they want. If a patient tells me, you know what I want? I want to go to the beach one last time. There could be a physician or some well-intentioned person in a hospital saying, well, that's just not possible. Well, if that's your goal, let's figure out how it can happen. Let's embrace the idea that it is possible as opposed to shooting down something that's at the core of how you want to exist until your last moment. Uh, to me, that's where the bridge between that medical model and that non-medical model come together. Well, do you think the baby boomers are, well, in my opinion, the baby boomers are aggressively changing how we serve people in and out of that medical model because they're kicking the door open. I mean, I believe in the last 12 months, the New York Times has had major end-of-life articles 
And I believe it's becoming uh, because the baby boomers are demanding something more. Um, this whole death with dignity is moving forward because I believe they are interested in choice. So how do you feel that hospice has to change or evolve or I guess, yeah, evolve to meet these baby boomers where they're at? Because there's a lot of baby boomers, like, for instance, David Bowie. Um, he didn't ha- I don't believe he had hospice. But he died exactly the way he wanted to under managing his pain. How can we educate people that hospice can be that option that's going to mold to you and instead of you having to mold to some Medicare regulated, you know, form and a box and conveyor belt? So I think as a hospice, that starts with us. It's about us deciding that you know, it's an old, and this is going to age me terribly, but there was a, a campaign by Oldsmobile, I think in the 80s, that this is not your father's Oldsmobile. And I talk a lot about that with our company and say, we need to change how people see hospice. And the first way to change how they see us is to be a different kind of hospice. So it, it I think you're right. The boomers are going to expect more. They're the ones that show up to an appointment with, you know, a hundred pages of stuff they printed out on the internet. And they want, they want to be this, I'm (laughs) I'm an empowered consumer. I'm informed and I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And, and I, and I think that's really good, but it is an incumbent on us say like, okay, so how do we respond to that? There's, I'm sure there's some folks who think, ah, here comes that person with their pronouns from WebMD. To me, that's an educated, informed consumer who wants to be part of the care plan and that path. So let's do that together. Uh, to me, it's about co-creating the possibility and saying, all right, you're with me. All right, grab my hand. Let's go together. And maybe you've got something that you can teach me. You can definitely teach me what you want. Now, when I think about the David Bowies and I think about famously you know, recently Barbara Bush, who had hospice for a day, better a day than not at all. But how do we help show that it, it's not either or? You don't have to be on a cure path or on a straight palliative path. There's a chance to bridge that together. Will we ever get to 100%? No, I I think we won't. But if we could get to a point where we had every person who dies in this country dying on their terms the way that they want to, if it's David Bowie and he doesn't have hospice, but he died with a hospice philosophy, I think we've done our job. It's just, I like that. It's it's just about us opening it up. And I, I, I think about, all the times that, uh, and I'll share a personal story of my friend Jody. She had all these opportunities to follow all these different curative paths. And I just kept thinking, there's all these things that the doctors and hospitals could do to her. But should we? Is, is that consistent with who she wants to be and how she wants to live her life? When we boiled it down, the survival rates at five years, two years, even at one year, were so marginal. And the symptom burden and all they were going to put her through was going to be excruciating. She honestly said, peace out, oncologist. I'm going home. And I'm going to live my life on a hospice philosophy. And, and when I asked her, so girl, what's important to you? What do you want? She's like, I want to get as close as possible to Luke Bryan in the tightest pair of jeans that he owns. <laughs> I love it. I was like, all right, well, let's let's get you to a Luke Bryan concert. I said, what else you want to do? She's like, I want to watch the Olympics. This is the last Olympics I'm going to have. 
So we sat together and watched rhythmic gymnastics where neither one of us had a clue what was happening with the ribbons and the bowling pins and whatever was going on. But she looked at me and she's like, this is my last Olympics. I'm going to enjoy every second of it. And I think about how she lived that last year of her life. She actually beat the doctor's best expectations, even if she'd had aggressive treatment and radiation and chemo and did it herself. And to me, when I think about what a hospice philosophy is, that's at the very core. Like, who do you want to be and how do you want to live and what support do you need to help you realize those goals? To me, that's at the very core of what hospice should be. Wow. That, you know, this is what keeps coming up in my mind and in conversations. The more I talk about death, the more I talk about life. And just like with your friend, you know, this whole death thing gets such a bad rap they, that if you are facing a, a chronic illness or a serious illness or a terminal illness, it means that you're not living. But that's not true. What, what to me, hospice helps individuals live as fully as possible until that last moment, that breath. Um, a few minutes ago, you mentioned terminal and you know, the big T word in the hospice industry, and, and some people use it now, and some people don't. But this is talking very frank that a lot of people don't realize that some chronic illnesses are terminal. We don't talk about it. Like, for instance, congestive heart failure, very terminal. You're not going to solve that unless you have a heart transplant. Um, and I, I think that that's what's interesting is how can we expand the knowledge and awareness because as when I was a, a, a VP of marketing, I always said, as long as I do my job, that people are aware of the choice of hospice, then I feel like we've done our job. Then it's up to them to make their decisions and us support them through whatever decisions they are making. But this is the thing. There are hospices popping up everywhere. How do you know and how do you choose a good hospice because there's some states that have 40 hospices in one area. I mean, if you were a consumer and, and uh, a caregiver like you were, you know, possibly with your father, I mean, how do you go about picking the right hospice for your family? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Kimberly. And I think it starts with knowing that you have the right to make that choice. I think so often we fall in, especially when it's a hospice referral, if it's a later referral, sometimes we feel this is the one that someone recommended to me, therefore it's the one that I ought to take. And I think it starts with being empowered to know you have the right to make that choice. And the earlier in a disease process that you start thinking about what care options do I want, I think the more empowered you are to have the time to do the research and make the right choice. It's interesting, I, just a quick aside, if you look in this country at the number of people who will make detailed funeral plans, they will figure out, they'll buy a funeral plot, they'll pick a casket, they'll figure out what dress to be buried in or what suit, what they want to wear, what song should be sung, but they won't talk about actively the last six months of their life. So if we get to a point where they're having those conversations, there can be a discussion about what's important. And then it's about matchmaking. It's about, okay, what's important to me? And which provider, hospice or otherwise, will help me realize that? And, and to me, if I'm looking at how do I pick the right hospice, I ask questions, and I also see if they ask me questions. 
if what they tell me is here is my box of hospice and it's the same for everybody, for me, that's not the right hospice because I want someone who's going to actively listen to my priorities, my goals, my fears, my worries, what I know about my disease. They're going to ask me those questions and they're going to actually listen and then attune their treatment plan recommendation to my priorities. Because if we don't ask these questions, then we don't know the answers. How can we, as a hospice, quote unquote, meet somebody where they are? I, so I think if I'm, if I'm that consumer and I'm trying to make an informed choice on hospice, I'm going to ask them a lot of questions about their philosophy. I'm going to ask them on what I can expect. And if all I get back is a rote answer of we have doctors and nurses and social workers and chaplains, that's not enough for me. And if I don't see them actively asking me questions and listening to my priorities, my fears, and my worries, that's a red flag. The, the, the hospice that I want to be with is the one that wants to know me and wants to actually live their mission of meeting me where I am, not just physically. Don't just say, I'm meeting you where you are because I came to your house. No, find out what's important to me. Uh, one of the most important pieces of literature in our movement has been Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Uh, and I'm a little bit obsessed with Atul Gawande. And <laughs> the, I, we've actually turned the Frontline special, uh, aired on PBS a few years ago, into a CME, CE educational opportunity. And I've done it as grand rounds for countless hospitals and physician groups and nursing homes and groups of nurses across the country. And what I found in that is there's so much power in acknowledging we as healthcare providers don't always do a good job when it comes time for those difficult conversations because we're so busy trying to give hope and trying to grasp at a straw that makes us feel like we're not failing. And in doing so, I think that's the biggest failure. Uh, there's a story in the Being Mortal documentary of Norma Babineau, and she's under the care of a physician who you can tell has her best interest at heart. But she's been under his care for two years. And in two years and multiple hospitalizations, no one has broached the subject that her cancer was going to kill her, that no matter what he did, no matter how hard he tried, no matter what treatment protocol or regimen he put her on, this cancer was going to take her life. No one had that conversation with her. So how could she possibly communicate her goals? My goals today are very different than my goals would be tomorrow if you told me I had terminal cancer. And, and to me, there are some hospices that may or may not embrace that word. To me, it's a real word. Like this, 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 this disease is, is more than likely going to take your life. That's a really hard thing to say, but doesn't it give me the power to now communicate what my wishes and goals are? Uh, I think about Nora Babano in this Being Mortal video where she says, but I have to get better. I've promised the baby I'd take her to Disney World. So you have to give me medication so I can get better and I can take my trips. That was her goal. She didn't know she was running out of time. Had someone actively communicated to her, you know, this cancer is likely going to take your life. So let's talk about your priorities. Let's talk about what's important to you. Because the only, it's not like the only priority someone has is living longer. They want to live better. So what does that look like? If they don't know they've got a limited prognosis, they can't very well orient their timeline to get that stuff accomplished. So to me, we need to do a better job as a healthcare system and opening up that dialogue. It's a hard conversation, but there, there was a Kaiser Family Foundation study done a few years back where 
uh, people said they wanted their physician to have that conversation with them. But of that group, and these were people who were facing an advanced illness, and they wanted, they were craving that conversation, but only 17% had actually had that conversation. That's an enormous gap. And I, when I share that with physicians, I tell them I'm, I'm not advocating that they're going to love the conversation. I'm not saying that they're going to hug you and say, thank you so much for telling me about my impending death. But that's not, that's not the response you're going to get. But what you will get probably are tears and anger and anxiety and fear. But once they work through that, they'll be in a position where they can make some informed choices about what's right for them. And to hold that back from them is to rob them the ability to actually voice their wishes and to see about getting on a path to make those wishes come true. Absolutely. I, I think false hope is, is so damaging. Um, to the family, to the patient. Um, I, I really believe in the truth. It, and even if it, it's the hard truth to come to terms with, it still allows that individual to to assess what's, what's tomorrow going to bring and what, where do we go from here and allow that patient and family to drive that. And if we don't, if we don't tell the truth, we end up taking that last fundamental step of life away from individuals, and that's just saying goodbye. And they end up in the ER, traked on in the ICU, and they die without ever having that moment to say goodbye. And, um, and that's where I think the truth is always, always important. And I know these are not easy conversations. Um, and I've been with many of physicians who have done it very, very well and very, very bad. But you know what? We're all in this together. No one's going to escape this. So how do we normalize this conversation to make it part of the life cycle? Because, you know, I was talking to BJ Miller back in San Francisco, and he, he came up and just said, you know, I think because life is, is precious because it does have bookends. It is going to end. If it never ends, ended, then then would today be precious? And he really allowed me to visualize that, why don't we live with the hospice philosophy every day? You know, why, why don't, because I could die tomorrow, um, not with a chronic illness, but a tragic accident. And that's what, that's what I, I feel is the more I talk about death is the more I'm aware of how I'm living. Um, but this this is interesting is, is how, Mike, you can work anywhere. You, you have the resume, you have the talent and you have the heart and the passion. You can work with any organization with end of life services. What's interesting to me is why did you pick a menaces? It's an interesting question. I think, you know, sometimes, uh, I have the ability and the opportunity to go out and talk to our home health and hospice aides and our social workers and our chaplains. And I asked them the same question. And I'll tell you a quick little story because they've kind of turned it around on me. But the one that turned it around on me in the most compelling way was my daughter when she was four years old. She's now seven. Uh, and you know, how we, all, we, all, we, all, we always ask kids what they want to be when they grow up. Well, I was getting to a point where I was going to have to answer the question of what daddy actually does. And I knew I had to have that conversation when I volunteered in her preschool classroom. And her teacher said, oh, you know, thank you so much for coming in and volunteering. And uh, it was all fun and games until we had to cut a straight line, which I don't do exceptionally well, but it was fine. And she said, I'm just, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so thrilled to have you here. 
we don't get a lot of dads. I'm like, oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to do it. And she said, oh, you, you must be off this week. And I said, no, I'm just working from home. And she gets this really strange look in her eye, and she looks at me and says, how does a pilot work from home? And I looked at her. <laughs> and I looked at her, and I said, well, who's a pilot? Well, come to find out, my daughter, when she was asked, what does daddy do? Daddy goes to the airport, and he flies planes. <laughs> Oh, that is so sweet. Yeah. Oh. So it's a it's a small distinction that he flies in the plane, that he doesn't fly the plane. <laughs> uh, so it's like, well, it's 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 time to have the conversation about what I do. And uh, for me, there are times that I'll have something in my heart, but if I haven't verbalized it before, I don't exactly know how to say it out loud, especially how to say it in a way that a four-year-old's going to understand it and where it's going to resonate with her. Uh, it's just one of those spontaneous moments where she says, well, daddy, but if you don't, if you, if you're not a pilot, then what do you do? And I'm thinking, well, I can't say I'm in charge of growth of a national hospice company. What, what is, what does that mean? Right. So I just looked at her and I said, well, honey, daddy goes around the country and he works with people who help other people's dreams come true. Mm. And in that moment, I thought, God, that's exactly how I feel. And I've never really said those words out loud before, but I work for a company that lets me have that feeling oh, where wow. I know if I'm out, I was in Massachusetts last week meeting with home health and hospice teams. I did a being mortal workshop for 50 nurses and doctors at a hospital and every conversation I felt like I was giving them the permission to be the very best version of themselves that I was in a position or I'm not a direct caregiver, nor should I ever be a direct caregiver. But if I can support people, I can support people in being the best version of themselves. And if they feel empowered to say yes, and they say yes, and something really good happens, guess what? They want to do it again. If the person is eligible to receive our services and they want it, then we're going to find a way to make it happen. And we have countless stories that I can share with you that just illustrate the power of that the transformative power of being able to say yes, whether it's it's a phone call from a terrified adult daughter at 2 a.m. on Sunday, how do you respond to that? Well, you could say, can you wait till Monday? Or you could say, I'm on my way. And the power of yes says, I say I'm on my way. If a patient, if a patient is referred to us, and they, I have a patient story out of Morgantown, West Virginia, and this patient had been turned down by a couple of hospices. She was 99 years old, and she wanted hospice care, and she was more than eligible. Uh, but she also identified the three loves of her life were her family, her garden, and her painting. Those are the three things that she loved, and she was afraid that if she didn't continue her current path of blood transfusions, she wouldn't have the energy to enjoy the three things that she loves the most. So two other hospices had said, well, basically, we're not paying for those blood transfusions. And we came on the scene and we said, well, tell us more about that. T tell us more about what, why you get blood transfusions. And she said, because they give me the energy to do and enjoy the things that I love. When would you like to start? You're eligible. You want the benefit. Why should we let an artificial financial barrier be the reason that you don't get to embrace the benefit that you're telling us that you want? So I got a photo about a week later. Here she is uh, 
with, a, I swear, it had to have been 100 candles. She had turned 100 years old, and she had like 100 candles on her on her cake. She was also wearing oxygen at the time, which seemed like a terrible idea to me. Uh, <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Now, not, not, I'm not a nurse or a doctor, but my dad was a fireman. I think that's a bad, that's a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> but she was on, on service for oh, probably two months with us. And she said, I'm going to get blood transfusions every week. She didn't. She had a total of two transfusions over a couple of months that she was under our care. But she found different ways of feeling better. I think a lot of times what we do is, is we say, you need to discontinue the treatment that you're on and jump onto our path. Hi, you've just met me. I'm hospice and I'm terrifying you. And everything that you've known and done and the path you've been on, you need to abandon that. And you need to hop on my path. And you don't need to take this medication and you don't need to take that medication. Yes. And that scares the crap out of people. Yeah, we have to earn their trust. And so with this patient in West Virginia, we were able to earn her trust. Over time, she was like, I don't need those blood transfusions. I feel pretty good. And so we told her, let's figure out what's right for you. She said, well, I don't want to go to the hospital or the doctor and get that transfusion. I don't want to do that. Okay. So I got a phone call on a Monday. Uh, the, that day before, on that Sunday, the entire family, like kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids had all come to Nana's home and brought brunch. And they had brunch together as a family. Then they went out into the backyard. And she got to sit there while she watched four generations of her family in her garden, tending to flowers and pulling weeds. Then she came in, she got to paint what would end up being her very last painting, and she died that evening surrounded by her family and her hospice team in her own home. And to me, had we not said yes to blood transfusions, we would have been effectively taking that away from her. And so when I think about why do I choose this company instead of somewhere else, that's at the heart of it. Because we're empowered to and we're empowering one another to say yes and to find a way to meet people where they are. We're not just talking about it. We're doing it. And if that helps, if, I, if you had asked her what her dream would have been, if she could have articulated it, I am confident it would have involved her family, her garden, her painting, and being at home surrounded by those that she loved. We made that dream come true for her. And I can't imagine doing this anywhere else. I love that story. And I love, what I also love is, is your company. I've got to know them over the past year and a half, Um, whether it's people I know working for you or people that um, have been working for you for a long time. You and I have got to know, know each other a little bit is what's amazing about what you specifically Mike are doing is you seem like you're making better people <laughs> because you inspire them and you see this company via you um, specifically. And, you know, I'm not here to blow smoke or anything like that, but the, these are the, some of the comments that I'm getting back is they feel inspired um, to work for your organization. They take care of their employees as if we were, a patient or family. They're taking care of those taking care of the dying. And do you know that I've, I find that worth a standing ovation because I believe a lot of hospice organizations, including my own hospice organization, um, we, we forget to take care of our employees as they're taking care of the individuals facing end of life. And how has a menaces and you specifically done that? How, how have you guys 
really taking care of your staff because it is so hard to take care of the people who are facing end of life and make sure that your staff is taking care of themselves. How do you, how do you do that? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. I'm humbled by your words. And I, and I think the most important and first thing to say is we are so not perfect. Like we have, (laughs) we have our bad days too. And, and certainly we have our challenges, but I think it starts with setting an expectation for who joins our team. I, I honestly believe so we can, we can inspire and shape and craft and mold, but we have to have someone who has the heart and the willingness and the openness to be that kind of person. So we legitimately have found ways. How do you interview for the power of yes? I would much rather, if I'm looking at someone who's going to be a liaison and, and interfacing with the community, I would much rather pick someone who has that kind of heart and teach them our business than to take someone who knows the business impeccably well, but is inclined to do it from a perspective of scarcity as opposed to abundance. So it starts with how we interview and who we hire. And it also starts with empowering our leaders to feel that they're being taken care of because we can't very well ask our directors and our local agencies to take care of their teams if they don't feel taken care of. But that only goes so far. So we can tell them what to do or we can show them what to do. Uh, I think about uh, we have annual workshops, uh, and I actually travel around the country and have a chance to work with our clinical teams as well. And I do these why workshops based on the the work of Simon Sinek and finding and kind of living and embracing your why. I love him. It's amazing. He's, He's amazing. amazing. He's, he, he, he and I are best friends. He just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> um, I hear you. <laughs> So when, I, when I'm not having these conversations, it, it's little things like if a nurse comes up to me and says, I have the hardest time not crying when I'm with a patient. And I said, well, tell me more about that. And she told a story about the uh, admission visit that she was doing where she was admitting the wife and the husband was there and the husband started to tell a story about, uh, I promised her. I would always take care of her, but I'm sick too, and I'm too weak to do it by myself, and I feel like I'm failing her because I promised her I'd always be her one and only. And as the story is unfolding, and the nurse is telling me, and she's crying, and now I'm crying, and, and I asked her, I said, so tell me, why were you crying? And she looked at me, and she said, honestly, because I so badly want anyone to love me as much as he loves her. And I said, then that came from a really, really good place. That's called empathy. Our, pa- our, our patients don't want robots. Now, if you're doing, the, if you're doing the, the ugly cry where they're having to console you, that's a, that's a different kind of story. <laughs> right. But if, you're, if, but if you're showing emotion and empathy and you're connecting to them, I, I think when I think about us culturally, it's making it a safe place to be that person. I don't have to stifle my emotions. I don't have to stuff them and pretend that I don't feel. And I know that I I live and work in a place where it's okay to feel. It's okay to have a bad day. I had uh, one of my liaisons come up to me at one of our workshops and just say, thank you. I'm like, oh, you're welcome. It was the first day of the workshop. He'd been with us for a couple of years and he came from uh, medical equipment sales and super, super guy. And he had shared with me the first time I met him. He said, I, you know, I don't know if I can do this hospice thing. I hope I can, but I'm not sure. And in talking to him at the end of the week, I just told him, I said, Nick, I want you to know that you're exactly where you're supposed to be. 
Like, I can't wait to watch all the lives that you're going to change. I can't wait till you call me and tell me that you just helped a hundred families this year. Cause I know it's going to happen. So he comes back a couple of years later, gives me a hug and says, that's from my wife. And I, I look myself, well, that's a little awkward. And, <laughs> and he says, he says, no, he said, because, you know, I love the work that I do. I, I love my life right now more than I ever have. And she shared something with me that I want to share with you. She shared with me that this job has not just made me a better employee. It's made me a better husband and a better father. He said, and I thank you and this company for doing that for me. And I looked at him. I said, Nick, you know, all we did is hold up a mirror. We held up a mirror so you could see yourself and you could see all your potential and all the things that you could do. And then we gave you the permission to go do it and be it. I said, so you're welcome, but know that you need to take a lot of inventory and feel really good that you've done this. You blazed this trail. We just gave you permission to do it. So that, that's not, Kimberly, it's not a great technical answer because there's not one secret to success. I, I think at the end of the day, it's about saying, we're going to let you be the very best version of yourself. And when you do that, it's amazing how people respond. I totally agree. I mean, we're all trying to build some kind of legacy and, and it's not just one thing, but it's everything that we do. And I think it legacy comes down to how many lives have you touched and, and hospice is a way to touch lives and it, and it all starts with service to something greater than ourselves. And, and that to me is why, you know, these nurses and these social workers and these volunteer coordinators, these, you know, really well, you know, messaging and, and communication individuals who are struggling to create a message that connects and normalizes this conversation. You know, this is what it's about because even it's crazy, but you know, life is so short, even on our longest days. And it's what we do with that life is it, what it makes me ask the question is who will tell my story? And it goes back to, have I done enough to change how people know how to face end of life? Have we normalized it enough? And I know that you and I are, are warriors trying to make sure that people have the facts and the truth and choices at end of life. And I applaud Emeticis for not only providing services to patients and families, but it seems like you guys are taking really great care of staff, which sometimes is overlooked in a lot of organizations. So tell me this, because we are running out of time, but how do people, how do people learn where Amenesis is? You know, are you in all 50 states or, you know, are you, so tell us, how do we find you specifically in medicines, um, and where are you and how do we make that first phone call if we feel that we need someone like your organization to help us? Sure. Thanks. Thank you for asking. So I, I would love for us to be in all 50 states. We're not there yet. Uh, we're in 22 states for hospice, more than, more than 40 states for our home health. Uh, I think the best place to go to learn more is our website, which is emeticist.com. There's a map of locations. You can even plug in your zip code and find out what services are in your area. It'll pull up the name, address, and phone number of our closest agency, and we'll tell you if we have home health, hospice, and or both in your community. There's also an online quiz that I'm super proud of. It's called Is Hospice the Answer? 
And the goal is uh, so many times people aren't sure. Well, I don't know if mom is is eligible for hospice. I don't know if she has a life expectancy of six months. I don't know how to measure that. But I can tell you what I observe. I can tell you the things that I know. And I know that mom's had a lot of falls the last six months. And I know that she started spending more of her time in a chair or in bed. She's taking more medication. We've been to the ER a couple of times. We're calling the doctor more often. My, my mom's feeling sick and, and weaker and more tired. And she has a shortness of breath. If, if you can take this quiz, it helps you just self-identify and say, you know what? I think there's some ways that maybe hospice can help. And what we found is people fill this quiz out. They submit it. If they choose to, they give us their phone number. We're happy to call them. Or they can just give us an email address. We can email some more information. And what it does is it opens up a conversation, hopefully a little bit earlier. We talked about the median length of stay in this country is around three weeks on a six-month benefit. We got some work to do. And what I, what I love to see with this quiz is that it opens up a dialogue sooner. There are plenty of times we talk to a patient or family who say, you know what, either they're not quite ready emotionally, they're not quite ready physically, but they've started to understand their care options and they know what path they can choose when they're ready. And when we can stay in contact with them and the time that they decide, you know what, we are we are informed, well-informed on our options, and we now know in our heart of hearts that we're ready for hospice, they already have a connection. They have a lifeline set up. So I would always say emeticist.com and RS Hospice, the answer quiz is a great place to start. Uh, I would also say for anybody that's thinking about, do I want to pursue a career in hospice? Or maybe I have a career now in hospice, but want to think about what other options I have in my community. Uh, we're always looking for great people to join our family. I, I think if we're going to care for more and more people, if, if you think about our mission, our mission isn't metric-based. Our mission is to change the way people die in this country. For us to do that, that means that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of more people who need our care in every community that we serve. That means we're going to need to have more parts of our family to be able to take care of all those, that increasing number of people who need our help. Uh, so I would obviously encourage anybody who's thinking about a career in hospice to reach out and let's, let's have a conversation because uh, we know that we're going to need more help uh, as we go out to provide more help to those who need this. I love that. And you always are looking for volunteers too. So, you know, volunteer, if you want to volunteer for hospice, but I will say your website is really has a, a lot of great information. The president of your company is on there talking a little bit about his why. And I, I just say thank you for being an organization that is radically going to change how people face end of life one person one community at a time and i salute you for that and i'm so proud to to know many many individuals right here in north carolina working for your organization but also you as well um and i i look forward to future relationships with you guys and keep doing awesome work now i one last thing i do want to say that if you are not um in a community where a medicine is I'm sure if you do call them, they will help you navigate to an organization or give you some leads to to get in touch with a hospice organization in your community. Um, but I guess we should say they will be coming soon, it sounds like. Oh, uh, that's that's our goal. And it's it's our great honor if if there is someone who reaches out to us and says, Hi, I live here in North Carolina, but my mom's in Montana. Do you have a hospice in Montana? And our answer will be uh, unfortunately we don't today. 
but let us help you find, maybe it's the state association, maybe it's the NHPCO website. Let's find some resource for you to at least give you a couple of leads on who you can contact. I always think about that first phone call that's made from someone who has a loved one that's struggling with a really serious illness, how hard it was to pick up that phone that mm. first time. The, the last thing I want to do is say, oh, sorry, I called the wrong person. So how can we help connect you to care and to help? Because if you've raised your hand and you've had to say the words, my mom's really sick, that might be the hardest phone call you've ever made in your life. And we want to do everything in our power to make it a little bit easier. Oh, that's awesome. Mike, keep doing good work. Keep keep hiring those great people out there. They are out there. And I love that you hire for passion and you teach them what they need to know about your organization. That's exactly how I hired people for many, many years. And I tell you, they were around for a long time and they made me a better person and a better teacher and a student. So congratulations on that. But I just appreciate you taking the time, helping us understand hospice a little bit more, but also hospice with amenesis um, and what that means to the 22 communities where hospices, and you said you were in the 40, 40, how many home health? Just over 40 states for home health. That's amazing. That is so amazing. And so I encourage you guys to reach out. I will connect uh, Amenis' website to this podcast. So even if they are not in a community, they're willing to help you, but their also website is an amazing resource just to start. Um, and I encourage everyone right now, whether you're facing a chronic illness or a loved one is facing a chronic illness, if you're healthy, start thinking about planning for advanced care planning, talking about what um, the possibilities are. And, and your website, Mike, does help with that as well. So um, thank you so much for what you guys are doing to change how people face end of life in the United States. Well, thank you, Kimberly. I'd, I'd love to close, especially sharing one of my favorite quotes of all time, uh, sure. author unknown. But when, when I think about my my work in hospice, and I think it's a calling. You know, people say, you know, why did you choose hospice? And I say, well, hospice chose me. Uh, I, aside from being a parent, working in hospice care is the greatest honor in my life. And I, when I get a chance to go out and share my story and try to help people see themselves in the work that they do. Uh, whenever it's a caregiver, whether it's a hospice caregiver, home health, a hospital, a nursing home, an assisted living, I share this quote with them because I think it, it has resonance for all of us. And it's it's this, to never underestimate the valuable and important difference that you make in every life you touch for the impact you make today has a powerful rippling effect on every tomorrow. And so for those of your listeners who are in healthcare and caring for others, uh, I just thank you for who you are. And what you do and why you do it, it's important. And even on those hardest days when you're not sure if you're enough, you are. And if you're not sure if you're making a difference, you are. And know that you're having an impact far beyond what you'll ever be able to see today. So, Kimberly, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I always feel inspired after our conversations. And I thank you and your organization for doing what you do to enhance end-of-life services in the United States. So, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Oh, of course. Thank you, Kimberly. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.